Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. One of the core teachings of the Buddha to uh, on the path to awakening, you know, the, the kind of the simple setup of Buddhism is um, we can end suffering through our own effort in this lifetime, that through our own meditation and renunciation and development of wisdom, we human beings have the ability, the power, the potential, really the ability to train our minds and our hearts and change our actions and our reactions to um, you know, what's called enlightenment, awakening, transformation, the end of suffering. This is the, the core Buddhist promise. And what I wanna um, focus on tonight is the Buddhist teachings on renunciation. And because uh, there's a lot, I think, you know, we're a meditation center. So a lot of people come to the meditation center to learn to meditate, which is um, add an, an addition, like whatever else you're doing in your life, I'm gonna add meditating. I'm gonna train my mind. I'm going to train my heart. I'm gonna learn to be mindful and compassionate and forgiving and, uh, and that's important. And it's the, the main topic that uh, we're you know, focusing on here is, is the development of meditation. But the Buddha's path, the Eightfold Path, can be broken down into three sections. And one is meditation called uh, sati or samadhi, mindfulness, concentration, meditations. And then um, part of it is wisdom, developing a a wise perspective, a wise view, an understanding, an intention on what's happening, both internally and externally, wisdom about the truth of, of reality. Um, and, uh, and then the middle section is all about renunciation ethics around karma and how we create karma and we're uh, accountable for our actions. And, and the Buddhist teachings are very clear about the necessity if you want to wake up, if you want to either, if you, maybe some of you have the grand aspiration of enlightenment of ending every shred of suffering in your life, of really getting totally free. Some of you, maybe, probably most of us are like, well, if I could just decrease my suffering a bit, I'd be satisfied with some progress, maybe not perfection, but I'd like to suffer less. I'd like to have more freedom. I'd like to have a greater sense of well-being, of contentment. But the Buddha was quite clear. He said, if you want to make progress, if you want to get there, um, it's necessary to renounce killing, to renounce violence, to practice nonviolence, to practice non-killing. These five precepts, the first precept to avoid murder, to avoid, uh, you know, murder is the the big part, but also just violence, to to take a a vow of non-violence. I'm going to talk about that tonight, but and then the, the precept of um, not stealing, 
and to practice rigorous honesty, cash register honesty, honesty around not taking shit that's not yours to take. You haven't earned it. You haven't, uh, you're not entitled to it. So rent, you know, letting go of your shoplifting habit or uh, whatever it is. And the, the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. And I'll talk tonight about what the Buddha meant about that, but uh, causing harm with our sexuality, being unskillful, being um, dishonest in our relationships. or um, And the precept of um, not lying. So not, so two precepts about honesty, actually maybe three precepts, you know, not stealing, not lying, and not lying to your sexual partners, not cheating. Um, so huge emphasis on the necessity of an honest life. If we want to wake up, if we want to end suffering, dishonesty creates suffering. And I'll talk about it, but I don't want to do the whole Dharma talk now. I want to do just a preview. Um, and the fifth precept in support of not killing, not lying, not stealing, and not sleeping with people you shouldn't be sleeping with or flirting with or whatever it is. It's not just fucking our sexual energy. Um, remaining free, renouncing the use of recreational drugs and alcohol. Remaining free from even catching a buzz. Um, you know, and so in our community, this is a I think maybe even more important than in most Buddhist communities where we're a community, a lot of us are recovering addicts and alcoholics. And so this fifth precept that supports our abstinence, our sobriety, our recovery. Um, and I, I feel so grateful that 2,600 years ago, the Buddha said, if you wanna wake up, there's no room for a glass of wine and waking up. There's no room for uh, a bong hit and waking up. There's no room for microdosing and waking up. Like all of that stuff that distracts you and creates temporary uh, pleasures is not part of the Buddhist spiritual path. And I feel grateful for that because I have to abstain. Um, many of us have to abstain. And this is a more challenging precept for uh, Buddhists who are not addicts. And who are like, what well, do you know, a glass of wine, it's delicious with the chicken. Um, I was talking to somebody recently that was trying to argue the point of like, I don't drink to get drunk. It just pairs so well with the food. <laughs> it's just for the delicious flavor. It enhances the flavor. And that's the point. Avoiding that, you know, uh, substances that enhance or our experience and just being with reality exactly the way it is. So these five precepts, most of you probably totally familiar. Many of you have taken the precepts or committed to the precepts, live your life by uh, this renunciation of violence and dishonesty and misconduct and intoxication, like you're, you're in. Some of you, maybe, there's a handful of new people here tonight. Uh, some of you maybe are like just hearing this and you're like, oh, fuck this. I came to learn meditation and now you're telling me I can't do bong hits. 
um, if I want to be a good Buddhist. Um, and I think that there is, you know, uh, sometimes a reaction or, or people who are like, well, I really want to learn to meditate, but I love murdering. Um, <laughs> I don't really want to give up murdering because, you know, I fish, you know, I'm a fisherman and I love to murder the fish and I'm a hunter men person and I love to murder the animals. And um, I just want to learn to meditate so I can get like, I heard actually that mindfulness will make me a better shot. <laughs> so I came to learn mindfulness so that my marksmanship when I'm out murdering is like more on point. And, you know, there is a, and especially at this point in, in our culture where mindfulness has infiltrated and mindful, you know, and, and the yoga centers and the mindfulness of like, we're having mindful wine hour, or we're, you know, we're, we're learning mindfulness in the military. We're going to be mindful about how we kill each other. And um, so it's becoming more and more confusing because mindfulness is the teaching of the Buddha, but it's been divorced from Buddhism and it's been divorced from renunciation and the precepts. Um, you know, but the way that this thing went originally was the Buddha said, develop wisdom, ethics, and mindfulness, and that they go together. And that actually you can't really get free without an ethical way of life. Um, and, and that meditation by itself is not enough. You can be an amazing meditator. And if you're not being honest and ethical and uh, careful with your actions, your karma, you're not going to get the result that you desire. That's my whole Dharma talk. I just blew it. But <laughs> I meant to just uh, give you a preview and ask you, as, as many of you know that come regularly, I like to start by asking you to connect. A, a huge part of our community of Against the Stream is like having a Sangha. Sangha is the Buddhist word for community, where we meet each other, we connect with each other, we develop long-term uh, friendships and, and community, you know, involvement. Um, and so I always ask people at the beginning of class to introduce yourself, to talk to each other for a minute. And I like to sometimes, like tonight, give a topic. And so the topic is the five precepts. And when you think about this, killing, stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, or intoxication, what's most challenging for you about these precepts? What, what is like, oh, I don't really want to stop lying. I don't really want to stop killing. I don't really, or I want to stop, but I just keep blurting out exaggerations or minimalizations or omissions or, you know, or, um, you know, I, I want to have sexual uh, I don't, I, I want to abstain from sexual misconduct, but I just, I'm such a flirt and I just keep, you know, kind of flirting, even though I'm in a relationship or whatever it is, whether it's misconduct and, um, or maybe, you know, maybe you're somebody who's not in recovery and you're like, I love Buddhism, but, uh, and I'm not an alcoholic and I like to have a drink. And this fifth precept challenges my, you know, can I be a Buddhist? Can I really do this even though I like to have a drink or, you know, I have my, you know, biannual uh, LSD therapy or whatever, whatever it is. Um, the one thing I will say 
is that these are not commandments. These aren't even rules. They're suggestions. They're teachings. They're for our investigation, for our contemplation. Um, they're the Buddha's teaching. He said, you want to get free? Here's how you get free. Train yourself in mindfulness and stop lying and stealing and fucking people you shouldn't be fucking and don't get high ever and you have a chance to freedom. But as long as you're creating the karma of uh, freedom's probably not, you know, maybe you can make, maybe there's a ceiling. Maybe, you know, maybe you're kind of a self-imposed ceiling <laughs> um, if you're not willing to have that level of renunciation. So after we meditate, we'll have some more discussion about the five precepts and the, the Buddha's teaching on uh, wise conduct and ethical behavior, karma. So find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed, meditative. And allowing our eyes to be gently closed. Taking a moment to release, relax any unnecessary tension. Softening the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Releasing the shoulders. Breathing in, feel the sensations the breath creates at the nostrils. And breathing out, soften your belly. See if you can let go in the stomach. We establish mindfulness, the practice of intentionally bringing awareness to the present time experience, the here and now. And mindfulness works best when we bring a attitude of friendliness, the intention to be patient, kind, forgiving, and compassionate towards our own moment-to-moment -moment experience, whatever the mind does, whatever the body feels, with the intention of kindness and patience.
the Buddha's initial meditation instruction is simple. He said, establishing mindfulness in the upright body sitting. Breathing in, one knows I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows I breathe out. Bringing our awareness to the sensations of the breath. Of course, our attention doesn't stay with the breath. We get drawn back into thinking about the future or the past. So the initial practice is learning to return to the breath, disengaging from the thoughts, not trying to stop the mind, but we are trying initially to stop paying attention to the mind. As we choose to pay attention to our body, sitting, breathing. How do you know your own breath? How do you know whether you're breathing in or out? Is there any difference in the sensations and the nostrils between the in-breath and the out-breath? Bring this kind of curiosity and investigation to the present simple experience of breathing.
You might just feel a breath or two before your mind wanders, starts paying attention to the thoughts without judging it with patience and perseverance, gently returning to the breath. Sometimes it's helpful to note in and out to help track whether the breath is coming or going.
the intention to connect and sustain awareness in the body, the first foundation of mindfulness, sitting, knowing that you're sitting, breathing in, knowing that you're breathing in. When we're lost in thought, the contents, the stories, the plans, we're no longer here, no longer present. Bringing our attention out of the thinking mind into the feeling body over and over. Investigating the body, using the mind to contemplate, reflect. What am I feeling right now? What sensations does the breath create? What sensations does sitting in this chair, cushion, create?
the breath and the body will teach us so much about the reality of impermanence, the constantly changing nature of all sensation. We can begin to investigate the second foundation of mindfulness, the feeling tones in the body, how we perceive, we experience some sensations as pleasant, some as unpleasant, and others as neutral. As you're mindful of your body, sitting, breathing, bring some attention to what is painful, unpleasant, rather than ignoring or avoiding, investigating those sensations, learning to tolerate, to be with. In this way, mindfulness begins to teach us compassion for pain. As we turn towards our own pain with the intention of acceptance, the aspiration of mercy and compassion,
mindfulness of not only the physical sensations, but also the emotional. Perhaps breathing into your own heart center with awareness of what joys or sorrows are passing through or visiting. And rather than continuing to ignore the mind, include what's happening in your mind. Turn towards it. Observe the thoughts arising and passing like the breath coming and going. Imagine the thoughts are like bubbles floating through floating path, that the contents are inside the bubble, there's a plan, there's a memory, a fantasy, a fear. third foundation of mindfulness, where our awareness becomes totally inclusive of our whole being, present time, friendly awareness towards the senses, the emotions, the sensations.
more we bring our awareness to the present time experience, the more we see the impermanent nature of all our experience with the awareness of the impermanent pleasant thoughts and feelings passing through. We begin to learn to let go, to not cling, non-attached appreciation of the pleasant moments. We bring our attention to the unpleasant, impermanent thoughts and feelings. We learn compassion. To be with and care about pain, both internal and external. Developing wisdom with our own moment-to-moment attention. Before I jump back into this, talk about the uh, precepts and ethics and renunciation of the Buddhist path. Uh, Any questions about the meditation instructions or how to work with your mind, your body as you're meditating? Clear enough? Pay attention let go, be tolerant. Heard somebody say that um, 
being a meditator, no matter how sincere of a meditator you become, you can do meditate two hours a day and go to month-long retreat every year and you can take the shit real seriously but that without practicing the precepts without abstaining from dishonesty uh, without renouncing violence and um, if we continue to intentionally cause harm that uh, there's this image sometimes of uh, awakening is crossing over the stream. We have this image of against the stream, uh, going against greed and against hatred and against uh, delusion, against the self-centered human delusional tendency of I, me, mine. But sometimes in the teachings, the Buddha talks about uh, crossing over, crossing over the sea of samsara, over the sea of suffering to the other shore. And that the other shore is nirvana, is liberation, is uh, freedom, uh, an ability to meet our pain with compassion, an ability to meet other people's pain with compassion, an ability to meet pleasure with non-attachment, not suffering about the impermanent nature of everything, including the good shit. Crossing over to the understanding, the wisdom, the other shore where we realize like our mind is not so trustworthy, not worth believing and obeying a lot of the time where we develop the discernment of uh, some of my thoughts are correct, <laughs> but not all of them. Some of my perspectives are wise, but not all of them. And that often my mind is uh, giving me fear-based information that's not actually true. That's survival instinct cravings and aversions and delusions. And so that other shore that is the shore of wisdom. So this image of, you know, you can meditate a lot, but you can't get there without the precepts, without ethics, without renunciation, because it's like you're in a boat and you're going across and you're meditating and you're going across, but that that boat is still tied to the dock by the lack of ethics. And that we'll, we will never, no matter how much we meditate, be able to cross a certain point if we're not practicing renunciation. Um, if we're not actually saying, I got to let go of these behaviors, these actions, these intoxicants that aren't serving me, but are only keeping me maybe comfortable or uh, stuck in some way and i really like that image of like okay i'm meditating and i'm rowing and i'm rowing and then at some point i keep meditating but i'm not going anywhere because i haven't stopped lying and stealing and murdering and getting loaded that there's a you know there's a, a point where you just you're not going to get any further
traditionally, uh, it's even the way that this is formulated that they say uh, the Eightfold Path is, or Buddhism has taught traditionally in Asia and you know for the last thousands of years, um, is that you would learn sila, samadhi, panya, uh, and usually said in that order. Sila, which means ethics, renunciation. Samadhi, which means meditation, panya, wisdom. So that if you're ethical and you meditate, you will become wise. And for whatever reason, there's some theories about why, but in the West, we've been doing it backwards from the beginning. Westerners said, no, you know, we just want to meditate. We're not so interested in all of this ethical renunciation business. We're Americans. We want to be fucking free to do whatever we want. And we're interested in Buddhism because we don't like religion. So don't start giving us your religious rules, right? Like we came over here because Catholicism traumatized us or whatever it was, or Judaism or, you know, some form of Christianity or Islam or something, right? Your hippie parents, my hippie parents, something, you know, kind of brought us over to like, okay, let me check this out. It seems more rational, psychological based. Let me, uh, you know, I think maybe even more so in my community and the against the stream community where it's like, I'm not so interested in the religious aspect. You know, we're not, clearly you came here, you didn't go to like some Buddhist temple. You're like, let's check this out um, where they're not gonna be bowing to statues and lighting candles and chanting some shit I don't understand. and. Um, and so there can be a general pushback around like, oh, there's rules. And like I tried to say, in the, it's not, they're not really rules. They're suggestions. All of the Buddhist teachings, suggestions. Um, it's more like a map than like a rule book. It's not like the Ten Commandments. It's not like thou shall not kill and fornicate. Uh, it's just like, hey, you want to be free? Karma's real. It's a fact. It's cause and effect. And when you don't practice renunciation around violence and dishonesty and sexual misconduct and intoxicants, does seem like it's a little bit of a, you know, it is interesting setup, right? The first four are all harmful. Lying is harmful. Stealing is harmful. Mis sexual misconduct is harmful. Um, what was the other one? Killing. Murder. Murder is harmful. Right? So the first four, it's like obvious. Like it's such common sense. Like, oh yeah, that's hurting. It, probably other people, but also you can get on some level, like the karma of dishonesty, even if it's like a they don't know, you know, what they don't, you know, I know a lot of people who love to lie and rationalize it. And they're kind of like, well, they don't even know I'm lying. So it's not hurting them. But the karma of that, of like, oh, it's lying. You know, it's, it's hurting you. You know, you own that. And, you know, we all have some level of a moral compass. If you're not a complete um, psychopath. Uh, then you, you know, you, you feel some form of guilt, some form of like, oof, I don't get caught or lying or stealing or. 
And then the fifth precept does, you know, recently, I think it was Russ and I were talking recently, somebody, uh, was it you, right? We we're talking about the fifth precept as being like, well, maybe the Western Buddhists have sort of ignored a lot of the Western Buddhists, like almost none of my teachers that aren't monastics actually follow the fifth precept. Jack Cornfield, my father, all of these famous Ram Das, um, you know, probably 85% of the spirit rock insight teachers just ignore the fifth precept. They're just like, we drink wine, we smoke weed, a little LSD, whatever, you know, like they just ignored this core part of the Buddha's teaching, maybe rationalized by like, it's not causing harm, like lying and stealing and killing us. And maybe it's one of the reasons why in the West we've focused so much on meditation and not ethics, because a lot of the founding Western lay teachers uh, aren't all that ethical and aren't all that connected to the um, fifth precept, you know, this kind of core teaching of the Buddha. And again, like this, uh, I don't think it can really be debated by... um, anybody that knows the early teachings of Buddhism, like this is really clearly the central teaching of the Buddha. If you really want to get free, it's not that getting high or intoxicated, it causes harm, but what it does do is it blocks mindfulness. And mindfulness is the tool, is the path to freedom. And so we're committing to like, I want to be mindful. I want to be awake. I want to be present. I want to learn to respond to life on life's terms, on the natural way of things without obscuring it, without dulling it, without recreationally medicating it, (laughs) right? The Buddhism is not against medication. Um, Buddha's, I, I, I think of the Buddha as sometimes he's called the great physician and that he was, uh, he was, um, you know, his, his whole teaching is how do we cure suffering? And he also knew about medicine, the, the ancient Indian medical system of Ayurveda and was, um, very pro, uh, supportive of people taking medical treatments. And so when it comes to, you know, like modern psychiatry and, you know, modern sort of like, well, I'm depressed, I need antidepressants or I'm anxious, or I don't think there's not a Buddhist stance against medication. And the precept, the fifth precept is against recreational self-medication. Not like doing it because you need it for a medical or psychological um, reality that you're experiencing but uh, doing it just for fun, <laughs> just to avoid reality, just to change reality, just to augment your experience. And there's a lot of levels of, you know, we can look at the first precept around the way that it was originally stated was something like abstaining from taking, intentionally taking life. And I like that intentionally taking life. And I've been saying murder partially because I like the sound of it, but 
um, maybe we actually have to make a distinction with this first precept between unintentionally killing and intentionally murdering. Not that, you know, killing and murdering, same, same, but we need to make, because the reality is on this planet and this life form, it's impossible to not kill. You will for sure kill probably on your way home tonight, you'll kill. You probably run into some bugs, maybe step on some ants, maybe like there'll be some life forms that will lose their life because of you <laughs> very soon, but not intentionally. Like you're probably not going to go out of your way to be like, I'm going to go step on those ants or I'm going to swerve into that gnat or bug or whatever it is, but it just is going to happen. Unintentionally, you're going to kill some living beings. And the practice here, the training is saying, well, like, I'm not going to intentionally do it. And so, and the level of like, how committed are you to that? Are you willing to not kill mosquitoes when they're fucking with you and making you uncomfortable? The unpleasant buzzing at 2 a.m. right in your fucking ear. Are you willing to tolerate that out of compassion for that life form? Or do you have a view that's just like, no, fuck a mosquito. I'm going to kill it. And I'll take the karma. If there's karma involved, I'll own it. And, you know, this is part of it. Like, do you believe in karma? Do you think that actually murdering has a possible negative effect on you? hatred, intolerance. I hate mosquitoes so much. I feel totally justified in murdering them because they're unpleasant. They make me uncomfortable. And then I have to itch for like three days, a swollen bump. So I'd rather snuff out that little fucker. And there's some hatred in it, isn't there? Fucking hate them. And I want to kill them because they don't deserve to exist like I deserve to be comfortable. And just looking at that, you know, our kind of human-centric, self-centered, I deserve to be comfortable and free from annoying bugs. They can fucking die. And there's some hatred in that and sort of if and on this path of like, hey, I want to be filled with love and compassion for all living beings. But I can't even tolerate a spider in the bathtub. Jason, but if you're going to tell God, mosquitoes going to kill you without any doubt. It's going to kill you? Yeah, mosquitoes in a taiga. No, taiga is a big, big forest in Siberia. Oh, because they have diseases. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, in, in they have their own karma. Yeah. Oh my god. All living beings, from a Buddhist perspective, all living beings have karma, and that we're in this cycle, right, of 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 rebirth, and so all living beings have karma, including animals and insects and, and we're all responsible for but we, human beings have a um 
an ability to practice renunciation on a level that most animals don't. You know, and we're all driven by a survival instinct. The mosquitoes driven by a mos survival instinct. The, the predator lions and survival instinct. I got to kill to survive. I've got to suck your blood. You know, those little fucking vampires. I just think it's a great because like everybody is pretty annoyed by mosquitoes, right? And we all kind of feel like, why wow, those don't count. I can murder them. So, you know, some people, some Buddhists say, like, eh, you know, just don't kill humans. Humans are important. Some become very like, actually, let's not kill the mosquitoes. Not let's not kill any animals. Let's all become vegetarian. Let's not participate not only in killing, but in uh, consuming animals that other people have killed. The precept itself is about the murder itself, not about the consumption. And this is very controversial in Buddhist circles because uh, the Buddha wasn't a vegetarian. He said nonviolence. He said, don't kill animals. He said, there's karma in killing. But he was a beggar monk who accepted whatever was offered to him for food. And so when people offered him meat, he accepted it. And so, you know, you have to find your own way with where's your relationship to violence and to murder and to honoring not only human life, but animal life. The levels of uh, interpretation around honesty, around not lying, not stealing, like how, uh, you know, maybe you're mostly honest. Maybe you're... Um, cash register, you don't like shoplift or, you know, mug people on the streets or break into homes or you know, you're not out robbing and stealing. But how's your, you know, we have to look at like, how's our honesty around um, stuff that's not really freely offered? Like, I always feel like, like the coffee shop sugars and creamers and napkins and stuff like that that's like it's 100% offered if you're purchasing something to use at that time like you can take a sugar and put it in your coffee but grabbing some extra sugars for later is not offered is totally stealing <laughs> and people are like well they were there like they're it's offered it's freely offered and it's like no no that's just for this coffee those napkins are for now not take a pile to put in your car for later <laughs> and you know so many of us like are get a little loose around that of kind of like well you know i needed some you never know when i might need 37 toothpicks <laughs> so i'm going to grab a handful of toothpicks or around truth telling not only um, not blatantly lying of looking at uh, exaggeration. Would you, do you round up? Do you round down? Um, like how many people were there tonight? Well, there was like about 50. Nope, there was 47. I mean, if you say about, maybe you can get away with that, about. Do you um, minimize? 
you know, kind of take to, what's your tendency in, in communication around honesty? How much, uh, how much did you spend? How much, you know, how much did that cost? Oh, you know, it was rounding down. <laughs> um, the dishonesty of omission, of not telling the truth when it's important, when we're in a kind of relationship, when somebody, um, it doesn't even ask you, but you're in the kind of relationship, the kind of friendship, the kind of commitment, the kind of connection where something happened that you should definitely tell your friend about, your partner about, your colleague about, and you choose not to. And you say, well, I didn't lie about it, but actually we're lying when we don't tell the truth when it's appropriate. It's the right thing to do to tell the truth and we choose not to. It's a form of dishonesty. Not, you know, even if we don't have to wait until we're asked. Well, you, if we would have asked, I would have minimized it at least, but you didn't ask, so I didn't tell. And again, that depends on the kind of relationship you have. But we all know that one, the, the omission. And um, sexual misconduct, I used to always say, you know, the Buddha is so pretty liberal about this stuff. Although he had chosen to be a celibate and never had, you know, became a, a monk and never had sex again the rest of his life. And, you know, for the monks and nuns, they don't masturbate. They full, full celibacy. It's part of their precepts. But he said for lay people, as long as it's consenting adults and that you're not cheating, you're not breaking a vow that you've made or someone else has made, pretty uh, liberal about consenting adults. Um, And I continue to believe that, but I'm also have become more and more aware of the uh, complicated nature of consent and um, how much communication is necessary where there can't be any assumed consent. And, um, and maybe this is also connected with honesty and dishonesty and the kind of, you know, in sexual relationships where sometimes we're not quite honest with each other. And sometimes we're saying yes, when it's not a real internal yes. And it's sort of, we're sort of lying. You're kind of saying like, yeah, I'm into it when you're not really into it. Or the opposite, when you're um, actually very into it, but you're playing hard to get and you're like, no. You put, you know, no. <laughs> And you're, but you're lying. You're actually, the answer is totally yes. But, you know, I want you to work for it a little bit, playing hard to get. And looking at the kind of, and this is, gets, I feel like gets bigger cultural conditioning, gender conditioning. You know, are you taught to say, to be fully honest when somebody's interested in you? Are you taught to uh, ask? Are you taught to, you know, where, where are you in round honesty around sexuality, around consent? Is, um, is there gender bias? Is there gender conditioning? Is there, 
societal pressure to say yes, to say no, to... So I feel like this is all very much when we're looking at the precepts, there's the kind of, don't kill, don't lie, don't <laughs> steal, avoid sexual misconduct, consenting adults. But then the more mindful we become, the more uh, aware of the subtleties of each of the precepts. Um, maybe, you know, here's, here's what's interesting. Uh, what a lot of Buddhists do, and a lot of my teachers, and I think that's sort of a general sort of Western Buddhist attitude towards the fifth precept is um, moderation. Uh, it's okay. If you're not an alcoholic, you can, you know, you can be a good Buddhist and still drink in moderation. If you're an alcoholic, you should be sober, but if you're, if you're not, you can drink in moderation. And I've, um, I just think it makes no sense at all because uh, is there anywhere where the Buddha is going to say, you, it's okay to murder in moderation. It's okay to have sexual misconduct in moderation. It's okay to um, steal in moderation. It's okay to lie in moderation. They're all, the goal is abstinence. And here's the thing I feel like actually the fifth precept is the only one that you can really somewhat easily do perfectly. Abstain from recreational drugs and alcohol. Just don't do that. When it comes to abstaining from dishonesty, yes, but it's more difficult because of the exaggeration, the minimalization, the, you know, the conditioning that we have. You can become rigorously honest, but it's not quite as black and white when it comes to communicating as it is when it comes to like, I just don't drink, period. Whether I'm an alcoholic or not, I stay mindful. I'm considering, had a really interesting conversation with a friend who's a Dharma teacher, a colleague recently about um, the potential for our community, for Against the Stream, to adopt uh, this very traditional Buddhist um, ritual that happens twice a month in Buddhist monasteries. It's called uh, Upasaka Day. And it's the, it's the day it's, it's done on the lunar cycle um, where twice a month on the full moon and the new moon, uh, the Buddhists get together and they uh, recite their precepts. And they take the five precepts for the householders like us and say, I'm committed to not killing and not lying and not stealing and avoiding sexual misconduct and avoiding intoxicants. Committed to that. And you do that and you take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And you just kind of reaffirm your commitment, your vows, your intent. Intentions. And then also as part of that, we turn towards each other um, a little bit like you did tonight and you, you know, talk to each other. You know, I really struggled with the fifth precept this month. I was at a wedding and, you know, I'm committed to this fifth precept, but um, champagne came around and my Buddhism went out the window. And then at that same wedding, I got a little too drunk and I slept with somebody 
probably shouldn't have slept with. There go my third precept. And then I had to lie about it. There go my second precept. So you killed it? <laughs> <laughs> so then I had to murder. And here I am in prison. And it all went back to that glass of wine. So as part of that, also this, it's like a Buddhist confession, but it's to each other rather than the kind of, you know, Christian Catholic, like the priest is the, you know, God's, you know, voice piece or whatever it is. Us just like, hey, we're committed to this together. And let us uh, make that kind of commitment of like, I want to live by these ethics and I'm going to fuck them up some and I want to admit it when I do. I'm going to take full response, my karma, but there's something about the accountability. It's not like we're judging each other. It's just, how can I support you? Will you support me? This is a beautiful process. Um, anyways, I'm thinking about uh, establishing it as for this community and kind of, I don't know if I'll do twice a month. It seems like a lot, but maybe once a month or maybe quarterly of starting to invite you in to do, because really in, at Against the Stream, what I do now is once a year, New Year's Eve, I do the precepts. And so some of you have been coming for years and I, I do it sort of once a year. Um, but I'm thinking about establishing it more uh, because I think it's healthy for the community to remember this isn't just about meditating together, that this is about bringing this into our speech and our sexuality and our all of our actions and uh, all of our relationships. So some thoughts about the um, Buddha's teaching on ethics. And you get to figure this out for yourself, all of you. You get to decide uh, how committed you are to the traditional Buddhist formula. You are totally welcome to be part of our community, even if you don't practice the five precepts. But there's a big encouragement here to consider trying them on and living with them and, and seeing, do you suffer less when you're honest, when you're nonviolent, when you're ethical, when you have integrity uh, around your sexual relationships and, and when you're sober? You, you know, and you know, for some people would be like, eh, actually, I suffer more when I'm sober. Those of us who are like, you know, have bottomed out in addiction, we're like, no, no, I suffer less now that I'm sober. <laughs> this is way better than being strung out. But normal people who are like, I love a glass of wine, it really takes the edge off. Now that I don't have that, I suffer more. <laughs> and that's why the mindfulness, the uh is so important to replace that false sense of relief with the relief that mindfulness that our meditative practices will bring eventually if you stick with it. So you get to find out and do as you see fit. The Buddha ended uh, almost all of his teachings, I believe, uh, with this like, here's, here's the way it is. Here's the path. Um, but don't believe me. Don't, you don't have to have faith in it. You got to find out for yourself. Try it. See how it works in your own direct experience. A couple of announcements. Uh, New Year's Eve is coming up. On, it's a Friday night. We're going to do 
um, I usually do earlier, but this year I'm going to do later, 10.30, 10 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. So we're going to do a, you know, a 10 to 12. We do an intention setting ceremony. We do the precepts, the refuges. Um, you come, you light a candle. You say your intention to the Sangha. Um, I'm going to allow about 50 people or so into the room, maybe a little bit more. We're going to sell tickets. You need to buy a ticket, register if you're going to come in person. And we're going to let around 50 people. I don't want it to be too packed. Everyone else is going to join us on Zoom. Um, so I'm gonna, it'll be unlimited. You can do it on Zoom. We're going to do a hybrid in-person Zoom, New Year's Eve, 10 to 1230 Pacific time. So it's going to be extra late for you East Coasters. You'll like watch the sunrise. Uh, yeah. um, so that's coming up. And I've got some retreats coming up, um, but they're not quite open for registration. I have the intention getting a um, day long in January. We'll do a day long retreat. And maybe some of these um, ceremonies that I'm talking about, maybe we'll turn them into a half day retreat where we do some sitting and walking and precepts. And so my intention is to have more offerings uh, next year and the new year. Um, on Saturday night, is that this Saturday? This Saturday, we have our monthly um, open mic. Uh, and it's at what time? 7 p 8 p.m.? At 8.15 p.m. Uh, this Saturday. It's like it's a Sangha open mic where, you, you know, if you want to perform something, you got some jokes, you got some songs, you got some monologues, you got a funny stories, some limericks. I don't know what the fuck they do, <laughs> but they come here and um, I think there's been karaoke, there's been uh, performances, and it's an open mic. Um, so it's uh, the first Saturday of every month, and it's this week. Host uh, uh, Russ is going to be hosting. China was, but she's not feeling well, so Russ will be hosting. If you want to perform, come see Russ, and he'll put you on the list. And we'll um, and and if you even if you don't want to perform, just like come hang out and laugh at each other. And, you know, celebrate each other and, you know, support each other in that way. It's one of the opportunities to connect outside of the um, pretending to be spiritual on Monday nights <laughs> and actually just hanging out with each other. And um, Classes done by Donation Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization that obviously we don't charge for the Zoom classes. We don't charge for you to come in the room. Uh, but the only way this, thing's work, this thing works is with generosity, is with you voluntarily supporting, uh, you know, our rent is $3,500 a month. Um, so your generosity pays the rent. Um, I was paying it up for a long time. Um, luckily, we're at the place now where the Sangha donations are mostly are paying it. So please, uh, please pay it by uh, making a 10 or 15 or $20 donation. And please consider becoming a monthly supporter of like not just giving donations when you come or when you come to Zoom class, but just signing up on the website to say, I wanna give $50 a month uh, recurring you know, donation to support the community, to support this continuing to be freely offered um, based on your generosity.
think that's all I got. It's thought that there's a positive merit, uh, good karma that's developed from our gathering and practicing the Buddha's Dharma and discussing the teachings. May this merit, these blessings be offered outward in all directions, shared with all living beings. May each one of us do what needs to be done to free ourselves from suffering. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.